Well, can I add my welcome to Sarah's? It is great to have you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to be with us today. Now, as always, when we're doing um, Church Online, I'd just like to start by giving you a moment to do two things. One is you may not have picked up a Bible or switched it on your phone when we had the reading just there, um, but it will be super helpful, seeing as we're doing quite a big chunk of Mark's Gospel, to have the text in front of you. So now is the time to do that, and or... Uh, you may have kids that need something given to them to entertain them just for the next 20 minutes or so while I talk. You can give them Lego or snacks. You may need a moment to do that. While you're doing one or both of those things, just let me explain what we're up to at the moment. We are reading all the way through and looking all the way through Mark's Gospel, which is one of the biographies of Jesus in the Bible. And we've called the series Recaptivated. So our aim is that if you're a Christian, if you trust Jesus already, that you will find just uh, how amazing Jesus is again. You'll be recaptivated by him. And if you're not, if you're using this opportunity to tune in and see what you think about Jesus, uh, I hope it will become clear to you why we think he's the most captivating person who's ever lived. And so we're looking at chapter 14 today. We're nearly at the end. Uh, just three more uh, sermons to go after this. And uh, so we're nearly at the end of this biography. Right, hopefully your children are well entertained and you have a Bible in front of you. And uh, I want to start today by saying often um, I start these talks by expressing my gratefulness for technology um, because we can't meet together at the moment. Um, and I am grateful, but I do want to say that preaching to an empty room, to the void... It's quite hard. I mean, opening up the Bible to people, preaching to them is hard anyway, the best of times. But when you can see the people who've gathered to listen and they're people that you know and love and you want to bring Jesus to them, that just feels like an amazing privilege, even though it's hard. This feels really hard trying to communicate to you when there's no one here with me now. Um, occasionally when you see these sermons, it's the second or third time I've had a go at recording them. It's really hard. What I'm going through because of the pandemic is just a minutiae of some of the hard things that other people in our church family do are going through. And some of them particularly because they are Christians. That's why I'm here doing this, even though it's hard. I'm doing it for Jesus. I'm getting words onto camera so people can engage with Jesus in the Bible. And I think Jesus is worth it. And I know in our church family at the moment that there are many Christians for whom life is full of that. You are choosing the hard thing that you wouldn't otherwise choose, otherwise choose because you love Jesus. You're pouring away at what could be best for you in his service for him. When you're doing that, when you're slogging through doing something difficult for Jesus, even though you're finding it hard, a real question that crops up is, might Jesus waste all this effort we're putting in for him? Might Jesus just be letting us pour our lives away, trying to do what is right before him, and it all be pointless? There are plenty of people I know who 
are living now with the consequences of difficult things they've chosen because they thought it was the right way to honour Jesus. They've gone to difficult places. They're plugging away at difficult things they missed out on things they'd have loved. And the question about those sacrifices is, will he waste it? Maybe even more so, is he worth it? Deconversion stories from Christianity are easy to find if you read on the internet. And sometimes while they are about, I've had this doubt that couldn't be met, more often than not, they read as what I needed to do for Jesus was hard and I was not convinced he was worth that. And I think lots of Christians, because they're worried about what they give to Jesus being lost or wasted, they look on at enthusiastic Christians who are giving up lots and they think, oh, I'll just hedge my bets. I won't pour away anything that matters for Jesus. I'll just live my life and also pray a bit. I'll just do what I like. You know, God's merciful, that's okay. Well, what Mark is teaching us today is this, that if what he says is true about Jesus' death, then nothing, no way that you respond to Jesus' death could possibly be wasted. It's that big and it's that good. Mark is saying today, it will never be a waste to love Jesus because of Jesus' death for us. And people do crazy things for love, don't they? But however crazy what you end up doing is for Jesus, if what he says about his death is true, then it's not wasted. That's the first point we're seeing in uh, 14 verses 1 to 11. Nothing is wasted on Jesus. Now, if you've been watching uh, with us for the last few weeks, when we look at the chapters before this, it's all been a little bit sort of angry. It's been threatening. That's been the tone of what we've been talking about. Jesus entered the centre of religious power of his day, the temple, and he tore the place up. And so he provoked a series of confrontations with those religious leaders where they're trying to humiliate and undermine him. And instead, he shot a sort of big hole through their system of belief. He just steps in and says, I am the God in human form who you claim to be worshipping. And I'm going to point out all your power-hungry hypocrisy for everybody to see. And the normal people... They've been loving it. And so the tension has risen between Jesus and these people. And Jesus finished, we saw two weeks ago, by predicting the day that huge temple will be totally cast on. And that itself is only a picture of how God will eventually judge the whole world. It's all been quite, you know, like that. And now we're going to back off for a bit. Did you notice at the start of chapter 14, the people who want to plot against and kill Jesus, they pull back briefly for the festival. And so we end up with this sort of oasis, a moment of calm between two storms. If you've ever seen the musical Les Miserables, it's about some people who start a revolution in France and as they're behind their barricade it becomes clear to them they're not going to win in their battle. And so they have a battle and there's another battle coming which they're going to lose. And they sing this song, Drink With Me. 
And it's just a moment to pause and think about the beauty of life before everything kicks off again. Well, we're in that type of moment in Mark's Gospel. We're going to pull back from Jesus' argument, his um, disagreement with these religious leaders that will lead to his death. We're going to pull back from that for a moment and we're going to focus on two scenes of immense beauty and poignancy where Jesus, in his calm, gentle heart for people who need his help, can be clearly seen without being under attack for once. So in chapter 14, he is at dinner at Simon's house and a scandalous story unfolds. A woman interrupts the men eating. Women were not supposed to do that. Women interrupting men was uh, pretty unheard of. And she breaks social conventions by touching Jesus. Then more so, she pours this incredibly expensive perfume, which in all likelihood she'd had her whole life. She broke that over Jesus' head. And remember, this is a hot and sweaty country. It was in time before running water, so the whole social gathering was probably pretty smelly. And then this woman breaks in with this pure, sweet smell, breaking through the body odour and the dust. Well, what happens to this woman? Well, something that happens to many women still today, she gets well and thoroughly mansplained. The men in the room uh, start saying to each other, why this waste? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. She gets told off by men, by the men for doing this. You know, Jesus smells nice now, that's nice. <laughs> but it's not the 25 grand that could have been given to poor people. But Jesus jumps to her defence. Leave her alone, he says, which is a pretty strong phrase. He says this shocking thing, you can help the poor anytime, but she did the right thing because she was preparing and honouring my death, my burial. This picture of Jesus is just so captivating. Here he is standing against the patriarchal culture of his day, defending the actions of this woman who could well have been a prostitute, who has behaved in a way that actually has made him look bad and a little bit seedy and dodgy. But he says, no, what she's done is right. If you pour out, if you're provoked to love for Jesus, by knowing about his coming death, well, that makes you, this woman, an example to these religious men. Now, I sort of made fun at the men telling the women she's done the wrong thing, as men are prone to do. But I think at the time, I might have done the same. To see a year's wages gone in a moment when there is so much poverty and need in the world, that does seem bad. For more than that, the marks of Christian, that is Jesus-centred ethics, the mark of that is to care for the poor. I mean, if you read the Bible, Jesus could hardly go on about that more. And the Bible repeats it again and again and again. The Bible does actually say, don't waste your money. Don't waste your resources. But not so you can have lots of good things, 
but so you can be generous to people who need it at the right time. And Jesus here appears to be almost sort of dismissive of that concern for the poor. It's really strange. It's really out of character. And the reason is because he says at this moment of his death coming, his death matters more. Honouring Jesus' death is more important even than the very best of moral commands. What Jesus thinks is most important is people pouring out their devotion to him because of his death to respond extravagantly with all that we have towards Jesus' death is more important, more important even than this extremely important responsibility to help the poor. Now we'll see why that is in a minute. We'll see what it is about Jesus' death that means it displaces the importance of everything else. But it's worth pausing and saying that this is not the Jesus that many people have in their heads. So let's just digest the shock for a moment that this is what Jesus teaches. A friend of mine who's somewhat religious this week tweeted something saying, We need to realise Jesus talked most about wealth and hypocrisy. And he was using that as a basis for his socialist politics. And he's true. That's true. He's right. Jesus did talk about wealth and hypocrisy a lot, even in the passages we've been looking at over the last little while. Jesus is very concerned that wealth will kill you spiritually. And he's very concerned that rich people will hurt poor people without even realising they're doing it. So Jesus talks about those things a lot. But more important to him is that you personally respond with love and devotion to Jesus' death. That matters more. So people think they are doing what Jesus would have advised by getting on with the good thing, and a good thing it is, of helping those who need it. But they're not doing what Jesus asks if they never respond in love personally to Jesus' death for them. He says that's more important. So helping the poor and seeking justice and protesting racism, they're all good things that should be done. But if you're actually listening to Jesus, you personally seeing that his death is for you and loving him, that matters more. That should be the first step before your moral, morally transformed life. I remember talking about this once with a group of friends and a younger Christian than me saying, that is my heart. I do love Jesus, but I want to know how to pour out my life in love for him. I love Jesus' death for me. I think it's amazing. What should I pour out? Well, I think this woman, the picture that she's giving, the question she's asking us is, what matters to you most? And how can you use that for Jesus? How can you use that thing that matters to you most to lift up Jesus' life-changing death to the world? It will probably be in a way like this woman that breaks social conventions. So if your home matters to you most, you using your home to lift up Jesus to the world will probably not look like the normal way people use their homes. If your career is what matters to you most, you using your career and the opportunities it gives you to lift up Jesus and his death for people 
we'll probably break all the social conventions in your work about we don't talk about faith and politics here. But those, that's what it's pointing us towards, that what will spill out of you in devoted, joyful love for Jesus because his death for you, what, do you, you go, what are you going to pour away because you're so moved to by him? I've been reading this week about a man called John Lang. He ran the, the very big building company called Lang. You'll see their signs all over the place now. And um, he's now died, but he was a Christian, very faithful, godly Christian man. And he built up really from not very much the Lang Building Company to this huge multinational global building firm, an engineering and building firm. And so he amassed a great fortune. But throughout his life, he only ever lived in the same three-bedroom, semi-detached house with his wife and children. And when he died, there was £371 in his bank account. Because as that fortune had been amassed, it had just been given away. Many of the church buildings or mission societies you might have heard of now are still funded by the Lang Trust. Now, he didn't make a big song and dance about that. He didn't do it to get credit. He just loved Jesus and so poured out what he had to serve him. Interestingly, many people's love for Jesus being poured out will result in them caring for the poor. But we must get that the right way around. There's, there's no value in Jesus' view of the world in just caring for the poor if you ignore him and his death for you. And in our church, this is actually a really significant question because we have so many capable people who have so much to give. There could be a huge impact on the world if everyone in our church poured out what mattered to them simply to honour Jesus and his death. Like this woman, it may feel like a waste. John Lyne probably never lived to see the results of all the money that he gave away. But we know it isn't a waste. And I think we're likely to spend time pondering about all the things I could have had if I hadn't given that away, or all the life I could have if I don't pour it all out for Jesus. Well, if that's how we feel, we need to look at how Jesus honours this woman. At the end of the story, he lifts her up and says, where the gospel is preached to the ends of the earth, people will recognise her and what she did. And of course, that's true, because here we are thousands of years later talking about her today. She's still remembered all over the world as a model we should follow, even though she was this woman interrupting with a slightly dodgy reputation, not included at all. And if you are holding back, thinking, I could pour that out for Jesus, but I'm not sure I want to, I feel like it will be wasted, she should encourage you because what it's say she's saying is, Jesus will not waste what will look like a waste. And there will be people watching this today feeling low. You've lost something important to you because you love Jesus. Jesus wants you to know that wasn't wasted. He stands with you. He honours you and this woman. And he does and will for eternity 
honour the countless small-looking people over the years who've thrown things away for love of him because of their trust in his death. But let's just get this right. This passage isn't so much a call to sacrifice everything, but a call to so grow in your appreciation and love for what Jesus has done for you that you're not asking anymore, what should I do? What should I sacrifice? But you're asking, what can I do? What can I sacrifice? Because he is so amazing. And perhaps that's where most of us are at. We're not at the stage my friend was at when she was asking, what can I do to love Jesus? We're looking at this woman, pouring out all she had because she's moved by Jesus' death and thinking, that, that's quite far away from my Christian life. You know, if you come from the background that I come from, there's a great value in being sensible. But being sensible can just be not loving Jesus. And in the circles lots of us move in, there's great store set by being a little bit cynical. We see someone all sold out and we think, hmm, well, it's a bit much. They're a bit crazy. But it's better to pour out your life out of love for Jesus than be cynical. That's why we need to be recaptivated by Jesus, if that's us. We need to be, like this woman, enthrall at his amazing death for us. And if you're not there, well, pray. Get the Christians round you to pray for you. Ask for prayer and seek God that for, to you know, awaken your heart in this love for Jesus. Who knows what you'll end up pouring out for him if you do that. We need that power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. But the other thing we need is the thing Jesus goes on to talk to us about. We need to get our heads round his death. This is the second thing we see. We saw nothing is wasted on Jesus. And the second thing we see is because he is the Passover lamb. One of our lockdown finds, thanks to our Connect group, has been this TV programme, This Is Us. And we're only near the beginning, so don't spoil anything for us. But it's the story of three people living today, interspersed with the back-in-time story of their parents and their childhood. And I think the point of the whole programme is to say you are more formed by your backstory than you could ever realise. The story of where you came from is still shaping the person you are today. Sometimes you realise, sometimes you don't even know. Well, the Jewish people into which Jesus was born had a national story who formed the very people that they were. And that national story keeps getting mentioned in our passage today. Um, it keeps mentioning the festival of unleavened bread and the Passover lamb. The backstory was this, that these people were saved in the past from a cruel oppressor. And as God moved over the land to judge their enemy... He passed over, hence the name, passed over them if they had killed a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. So their story was that they were cowering, frightened slaves and the power of God in terrifying judgment hung over the land. But the blood of the lamb kept them safe. That's the Passover. 
And then they had to get up quickly and escape the land, so they didn't have time to bake their bread. They had to eat this unbaked bread because of, they were escaping. And so at that time, every year, the people retold the story. They ate the lamb. They ate unbaked bread. And they lived the story that formed them. A people enslaved and weak, but with hope in a great God who would rescue them. And Jewish people still, to some extent, celebrate that today. It was a holy time with careful traditions to remind them and to help them inhabit and live in that formative story. It was treated with great sacredness because it was about God's forming rescue of them. The word for that it, that Jesus will use is covenant. It was a promise God had made them in the past and they lived in that promise by eating and celebrating and remembering. And Mark keeps telling us that this whole thing is going on at the time of the Passover. That's why we have this break in the violence and anger. The priests don't want to get Jesus during the feast. Did you catch that? It's the time of the Passover feast. And so Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room, observant Jews that they are, to celebrate the Passover feast. But Jesus starts doing something a little bit off-piste here. He lifts up the bread and he rewrites the story. He says about the bread not... We eat this to remember we once escaped from Egypt. No, he lifts up the bread and he says, Take and eat. This is my body. He's creating an amazing new story for his disciples. He's saying, Take and eat this bread together now. And that's for you to live in this story, which is me giving my whole self as I die for you. And I want you not just to look at it, but to eat it. Because you need to take this work of me giving myself for, up for you. You need to take that right into yourself, right into the heart of you. And then he took a cup. And they all drank it. And after they drank it, he said that what you've just drunk, that was my blood. I mean if you're not familiar with it, totally weird, right? He says, this is the blood of a new covenant, a new shaping story. You had blood that shaped your story before. Remember the blood of the lamb in the doorpost? It's my blood now that shapes your story. My blood poured out for many. He's basically saying what was a national story for a group of people. As I die on the cross and my blood is poured out, that will welcome lots more people into a new story. A story that Jesus writes that forms who we are. Our story is not a lamb as our substitute, but Jesus as our substitute saving us from God's anger. And our story is not from escaping slavery from a foreign power. It's escaping the slavery of sin, of our desires, which drive us away from God. And our God is the one who gave his own body to us for that. And poured out his own blood for us in that. And our God being like that, that is the story that forms us.
Now Mark keeps telling us that this all happened over the time of the Passover. And he even says um, in verse 12, they were getting ready to sacrifice the Passover lamb. At Jesus' meal, there seems to be something missing then, doesn't there? There's no lamb. They got bread and they got wine. Where's the lamb, the sacrificial lamb? Well, he's there offering the bread and the wine. The lamb was always just a picture. When Jesus dies on the cross for us, when his blood is poured out for many, his blood does for you, whoever you are, what the lamb's blood did for the Jewish people. His blood stands over us. And if we trust in Jesus, like the Israelites trusted in the blood on the door, it will stop any of God's anger at our sin getting to us. We're protected, we're safe. We're welcomed into a new covenant through Jesus' blood. And this new covenant, this new story, it forms a whole new people. It's our story. And we share taking that body of Jesus and blood of Jesus into ourselves by faith, by trusting him. And it forms a church with a story. Out of all the Sundays we haven't been able to meet, perhaps I'm most gutted on this one, that we cannot be together to celebrate what we now call the Lord's Supper or Communion. When we confess our sin, when we eat bread and by faith take Jesus into ourselves, when we drink wine and by trust in him live in the new covenant where many are invited, where we remember and worship Jesus, our Passover lamb, together, where, where we gather together to do that, what we're doing is retelling the story that shapes us. But we can't do that today. And we wait impatiently for the day that we can. But still through these words, God's Spirit moves us to meet Jesus. To eat his body, to drink his blood, to see that he gave himself up for me and he spilled his blood so many could be included. As the spirit makes that real to me, I'm moved, like the woman in the last story, to pour out everything for Jesus because of his death. I'm re-centred to what really matters, that I enter the true story again. And usually we do that by eating and drinking. You can only really do that together. It's a story of a people who are formed, so we do it as a church. And currently, what's going on means we can't. But we can pray and ask that his death, his giving of his self for us, and the blood of the new covenant welcoming all sorts of people, that new story like the old one, we can pray that sinks so far into us that it shapes who we become. We can pray that Jesus' blood, as he dies, our own God laying down his life for us, we can pray that that will provoke in us the most passionate, expensive pouring out of whatever I can to give him. If you really get 
this amazing truth about the God of heaven giving himself for you and pouring out his blood to welcome many, many people, that will provoke you to pour out in love for him whatever you can. And remember the woman, whatever way you do, it won't be wasted. Jesus will see and honour it, even if people think you're crazy. And whatever way you do, you will have to break social bonds to do it. Let me talk about one particular way I think this kicks in in our own church family. So if you're watching from outside, here's a little insight to our church. One of the things we often experience is that people come to us as young adults and through hearing about the story of Jesus and really believing it, they want to give their lives to mission or to Christian ministry or to even just staying here because they have a church here, even though their job could be improved by moving somewhere else. And other Christians in their lives, other Christians say, oh dear, you're missing out on career opportunities there. Sensible Christian parents think you're behaving a bit crazy by doing that. Now we all must respect our parents. But we all must also think carefully about the future. Think carefully about the best way for my passionate love, your passionate love for Jesus to be reflected in your life. If you're a kid with sensible parents, it might mean stepping outside of their socially acceptable expectations. And parents, if you have Christian kids and they are trying to make decisions, pouring out their lives for Jesus, don't try and mansplain your child out of it. Nothing is wasted on Jesus because he is the Passover lamb. Two more threads in this story you might have noticed as we finish, as we look to be captivated by Jesus. Did you notice how Jesus has control over it all? He knows exactly in advance uh, how the disciples will meet the person and get taken to the upper room. He's organising everything himself to make himself the Passover lamb. You know, there's heroism, isn't there, that is being caught up in a disaster and trying to save people. It's a different level to sort everything out to put you in a position to save everybody at your own cost. But that's what Jesus is doing through this. And here's the other thing that's interesting. The story of Jesus' death everyone that, for everyone that calls out this passionate love, it's laced all the way through with everybody else's failure. The dinner guests who basically say to Jesus, don't they, she's wasting a lot of money on you, you're not really worth all that. Judas, who goes out to arrange to betray Jesus. Jesus says to them, one of you will betray me, and then in the next breath is giving his body and blood for them. It's all part of the story that we live in, that our God deliberately set everything up so he could die to save us. And our story is one of getting things continually, seriously, badly wrong and it being those type of people for whom he gives himself up. The story we have today is for failures. It is people who know they are wrong and can't keep going, who know they don't get it right a lot, who will most be moved in love for Jesus. 
Perhaps if your heart is cold for Jesus today, it's because you don't think you really need his help. Well, the story is laced with your failure too. Many of us watching know that we're less than we should be. This week we've wondered, like Jesus' dinner companions, is he really worth all this? Like Judas, we've let Jesus down in order to save ourselves. Now, it's for those people. It's for people like that. That he pours out his blood. His heart is for people like that. And as you see that in Jesus, your heart will be called out to give him whatever it takes to honour and lift up and advertise that amazing death for us. He is our Passover lamb, so nothing that we give him will be wasted. So let's learn to love him. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that he loves us in our failure. We pray you will bring home to our hearts that nothing that's poured out to honour his death is wasted. Because he gave himself for us and poured out his blood so many could be included. May that passionate thought fill our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.